0: only about a third of the population with OA will need a joint replacement. So most people don't. There's people that are on the waiting list who have never actually tried these core treatments that are recommended by all clinical guidelines around the world.
1: That's Professor Kim Bunnell, one of our guests today on Rheumatology Republic's In Conversation podcast. I'm your host, Wendy John. Thanks for joining me. In a profession informed by the mantra, do no harm, Sending people for surgery when they don't need it is an interesting, ethical dilemma to contemplate. We're talking today about osteoarthritis, one in five Australians over 45 have it, and perhaps not in the places you'd expect. Professor Kim Burnell is the Director of the Centre for Health Exercise and Sports Medicine at the University of Melbourne. The Centre's research is regarded internationally as providing evidence for non-drug and non-surgical approaches to osteoarthritis. Professor Bunnell's team look for what works, what doesn't, and who it might work best for. They've also been researching ways to increase the uptake and adherence to these lifestyle treatments.
0: I think the key is that these non-drug, non-surgical treatments are core management. So exercise, education, weight loss if someone has overweight or obesity, they're the really key treatments. Before someone moves on to having drug therapies and certainly before they're even considered for a joint replacement and that really only about a third of the population with OA will need a joint replacement. So most people don't and it really is shifting that focus from those drug treatments to these core management because we know from the research that people are not necessarily getting those treatments or getting access to those treatments.
1: Apparently there's a tendency to jump straight to the old knee replacement.
0: That's right. There's people that are on the waiting list who have never actually tried these core recommended treatments that are recommended by all clinical guidelines around the world, including those from our Royal Australian College of General Practitioners.
1: So why would doctors recommend a treatment, in this case surgery, contrary to widely accepted clinical guidelines?
0: It can be that the clinicians don't really know that the core treatment's to give or it can be that patients think that drugs and the joint replacements are more effective so that's what they're pushing for. It's behaviour change that's hard to do. People may not necessarily have access to clinicians or to services. They might live rurally or they might have difficulty getting out of their house. They may not necessarily have the money to afford some of the treatments
1: And there's another reason, a a big call, but one that's backed by evidence.
0: A research project that was led by Professor Andrew Briggs surveyed a whole range of practitioners, including GPs, nurses, physios, dietitians and so forth, and did find that a lot of them reported lacking the confidence and the skills to be able to, for example, have that weight loss conversation. You you, You know it's important, but it can be tricky to bring up weight and do it in a way that's non-stigmatising, that can be difficult. So I think it's not that people necessarily don't know that it's important. I think it's around having the resources and the time to be able to adequately support those treatments.
1: Professor Bunnell acknowledged how hard it is for clinicians to manage lifestyle treatments, but she mentioned another tool at the disposal of the time-strapped doctor.
0: It's really been very interesting. We and others have done some research that shows that the type of language you use with patients can really influence their choice of treatments and their belief in the benefits of different treatments. Not using language that focuses on the joint, for example, so getting an x-ray and looking at the structural damage. If you don't do that and you focus more on language that talks about with hope and optimism that there are treatments out there, that the person can try different treatments, that there's a lot of effective treatments that they can do, using language like that was shown to promote patients' more positive beliefs around the effectiveness of exercise and their willingness to uptake exercise. So that's something that as well that can be you know relatively easily changed and focusing more on that person rather than their joint per se
1: does that translate then into outcomes beyond agreeing to start exercising?
0: Certainly, and we also know that positive expectation of benefit is a predictor of outcome as well. So if you believe that a treatment's going to be effective, you're much more likely to have better outcomes from that treatment and there's lots of different options. It's not a one-size-fits-all. What works for somebody may not work for them and they need to try something else. I think that really helps with the outcomes that they're going to get from the treatments that they try.
1: Beyond the pain and recovery efforts, there is an economic argument for promoting core lifestyle treatments before referral to an orthopaedic surgeon.
0: So for example, we know that in osteoarthritis, most of the investment for care is on joint replacement. If patients had better access to these lifestyle management treatments, we could save around $200 million a year.
1: Like most chronic conditions, it's a multidisciplinary team that can make treatment most effective. Professor Bennell says working within a care team is powerful, but that not every person with OA necessarily needs to see another health professional. They might be able to manage it themselves if they've been given the right resources.
0: Arthritis Australia have a lot of resources, Musculoskeletal Australia, Pain Australia, our Centre for Health Exercise and Sports Medicine have produced a number of free exercise programs that are available online. Links to all these resources are in our show notes. And Professor Bennell also
1: recommends one additional resource that is particularly handy. But let's hear about it from a doctor who helped put it together.
2: The Handbook of Non Drug Intervention, abbreviated to Handy, is designed to be a similar resource as a pharmacopoeia for drugs. And just like when we look up, uh, say, Australian Medicine Handbook, is we can get an idea of the indication and the dose of the non-drug intervention and any contraindications, size of the benefits.
1: That's Dr. David King. He's a senior lecturer in general practice at the University of Queensland. Dr. King is one of the project team for the Handbook of Non-Drug Interventions, or HANDY, and he says the purpose of the handbook is to make prescribing a non-drug therapy almost as easy as writing a prescription.
2: And the beauty of the handy resource is that it also comes with patient resources that we've collected as we make the entries. And we have resources from all around the world. Some are from New Zealand or, or UK or other places. Fact sheets, exercises with pictures that different groups have put together. So it's a great resource to use with patients. And I often print out the back pain exercises and to people and just circle a few. Like start with these two or three and then you know, maybe you can add that one in. To augment seeing the physio or if they can't afford or there's a wait to see the physio.
1: A part of the reason HANDY is so HANDY is that they have an extremely high bar for inclusion. It means that there are only about 100 conditions currently in HANDY, but that you can be certain that they are efficacious.
2: It's been building in in the number of interventions. Every year we we add a few more. There's many things that we get asked to include in HANDY that just don't have the evidence. We park them on the back burner. We've looked at quite a number and rejected them because they've got maybe one RCT or, or it's low quality with a few venomous control trials.
1: Handy has such strong clinical credibility that it's soon going to be an Australian export.
2: The UK are interested in copying our resource. set up something similar and we're going to support them in doing that. The College of GPs in Britain.
1: But back to OA, Dr King says the treatments for OA recommended in Handy are detailed and practical. It's helped him treat patients more effectively.
2: When people with OA say, say war, it hurts, but if you don't walk, you decondition and then joints get sloppy and then it hurts them even more and we need to walk around and sit in with GPs assessing them and they just tell people, you know, just keep active and lose weight. Just telling them isn't enough.
1: Often when osteoarthritis pain is discussed, it'll be about older people and their hips and knees. But our next guest says that we should also be looking lower, both in age and location.
3: Foot osteoarthritis is is quite common. In fact, for the foot, it's the prevalence rates are around about the same compared to knee osteoarthritis.
1: That's Associate Professor Cade Patterson. He's a sports podiatrist and researcher at the Centre for Health, Exercise and Sports Medicine at the University of Melbourne. He says that prevalence of foot OA is almost about the same as knee OA and even a bit more than hip OA. Professor Patterson says that 13% of people over 50 will have OA in the
3: midfoot. And then the big toe joint itself is around 9% of people, which is around the same as hip osteoarthritis. Now,
1: despite the high prevalence of foot OA, you couldn't be blamed for not knowing much about it.
3: It's vastly under-researched compared to the other joint, far more clinical trials in the knee and, and even the hip. And there hasn't been a single clinical trial of any treatment for midfoot osteoarthritis. There's one just starting up at the moment, coming out of Latrobe, which I'm a co-investigator on, but there are no other trials at all. And so as a result, you know, you can imagine if there's no clinical trials, we really don't have much evidence to base clinical practice on. And then the big toe joint, there've only been about four or five clinical trials for, for non-drug, non-surgical treatments internationally.
1: Professor Patterson said there's lots of different causes of osteoarthritis, genetic factors, higher weight is a risk factor, joint misalignment can contribute.
3: And then particular occupations, people can be at more risk, so occupations with lots of kneeling, squatting, essentially where the joint is loaded a lot more, and certainly injury is a big factor as well. So people that have had a knee injury, for example, like ACL, those people are at much greater risk of osteoarthritis as well. Ah, the
1: ACL, the constant spectre for sports people. The Lancet reported last year that ACL injuries are rapidly increasing for children at a rate of between 7 and 10% per year. The higher end of that rate is female children. The study suggests that this could be due to a doubling of participation in sport by young girls, and that was in a five-year period last decade.
3: ACL injuries in the knee, particularly if they go on and have ACL surgery, we know that the rates of osteoarthritis are much, much more common than people that don't have surgery or people that haven't injured their knee. Self-reported outcome measures like pain and function and those sorts of things are quite similar between the two in the medium to longer term, so 12 months plus.
1: So if ACL injury increases the risk of a painful chronic condition, when is it helpful?
3: Where surgery is superior is certainly in return to play, so people will return to sport, generally speaking, earlier. But then where it's perhaps not as good as non-surgical approaches are in these osteoarthritis outcomes, we know that the rates of osteoarthritis are much higher. And, you know, this is a, a young population, generally speaking, too. So, you know, these are generally speaking younger people with more commonly an older person's disease.
1: Professor Patterson confirmed the three core approaches for OA treatment are exercise, weight management and
3: education. For people that are living with overweight or obesity, we offer them weight management. So it might be a weight loss program, could be referral to a dietitian, and so on. And we see that there's direct relationships between the percent of weight loss and reductions in pain as well. And then the third is just offering people with osteoarthritis information and support around their needs in particular. A lot of people think that exercise will make it worse. A lot of people think it's a wear and tear disease, which we now know all of those are incorrect. And we can tell people generally that might be a little bit painful at the start for some people, but then longer term adherence will help benefit their symptoms.
1: Professor Patterson says that everyone who has osteoarthritis should be offered some sort of therapeutic exercise that suits them. But it's a lot easier to write a prescription or a referral than it is to get a patient to change their behaviour and start exercising.
3: Absolutely. And so we really have to find exercise that suits the person and that's that's often going to be different for everybody. So some people might like exercising alone, say at the gym, doing strengthening exercises. It could be going for walks with the dog. Other people may prefer classes and, and might like to do something like yoga. So it really does depend on the person and their interests, but really it drills down to what they're going to be able to continue to do. But
1: what kind of impact do lifestyle prescriptions have? Actually, create in the long term.
3: We see positive outcomes, very positive outcomes. So, those three approaches that we talked about have all been shown to be clinically effective and effective at reducing both pain and function. We do have additional treatment that people can consider as well. So, if perhaps it's not meeting their needs, we then can look at manual therapy approaches with a physiotherapist. Some people may use walking aid devices like a knee brace or cane, those sorts of things. And then if they're still not effective, pharmacological approaches can be considered. But these, again, should be used alongside those core approaches that we talked about. And they should be you know, in the lowest effective doses as well, typically starting with topical applications of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs as well.
1: Right now, Professor Patterson has a trial underway that's looking at the effects of footwear for people with hip pain that's consistent with hip osteoarthritis. I asked him about it
3: the hip pain trial was an interesting one. So last year we published another study that looked at the effects of what we call stable supportive shoes compared to flat flexible shoes for knee pain in people with knee osteoarthritis. So the most common flat flexible examples would be ballet flats for women and loafer style for men, whereas a stable supportive shoe could be a supportive jogger or runner or a walking shoe. Walking shoes are are really good examples as well. Now, that last study showed
1: that stable supportive shoes were better at minimizing knee pain for OA patients than, say, ballet flats or loafers. But there was something else that tweaked Professor Patterson's curiosity.
3: So, An interesting sort of secondary finding out of that trial was that hip pain also reduced with the stable supportive shoes. And, you know, these were patients that were recruited for knee pain. They weren't recruited for hip pain. But like we know with osteoarthritis, multi-joint presentations really are common. So quite a high proportion of these people had hip pain in addition to their knee pain. And yeah, we noticed that the people in the stable supportive shoe group also reduced their hip pain as as well as their knee pain. So we thought that that was was quite an interesting finding. So we're now moving on to to a study specifically recruiting people with hip pain and allocating them to either the stable supportive shoes or the flat flexible shoes. The
1: Centre for Health, Exercise and Sports Medicine has developed a reputation not just in Australia for leading research into body parts that have been neglected despite their risk for OA.
3: So we've just finished a study which has just been published looking at the effects of foot orthoses versus sham orthoses. And sham orthoses are, in our study, with just a flat insole that... That looked vaguely like the foot orthotic so it had it had branding and those sorts of things on it so in that trial we showed that both groups improved clinically so by what we call a minimal clinically important difference but there was no difference between the two groups so the foot orthoses actually weren't more beneficial than the sham insole which was a little bit of a surprise and when we published that the journal also published an editorial I guess just querying or considering why the sham group may have improved as well but they sort of postulated that maybe it had some cushioning properties and so there's some areas that maybe the high force under the joint is contributing to the joint pain and so as a result now we're we're just starting a trial which is just currently under review at the moment with our ethics department looking specifically at cushioning insoles to improve pain in people with big toe joint osteoarthritis Mm -hmm.
1: So now that we've covered the hips, midfoot, knees and toes, knees and toes of osteoarthritis, I'd like to thank our guests for joining us today on Rheumatology Republic In Conversation podcast. Podiatrist and biomechanical researcher, Associate Professor Cade Patterson, Professor Kim Vennell, physiotherapist and director at the Centre for Health, Exercise and Sports Medicine at the University of Melbourne. We also heard from Dr. David King, GP and Senior Lecturer at the University of Queensland. Now, for all the latest news and views about rheumatology, check out our Rheumatology for Public magazine or our website, www.rumor.com.au. You can subscribe to In Conversation podcast on Spotify and iTunes. I'm your host, Wendy John. Thanks for joining me.